Hey everybody. So before I begin this episode, I wanted to provide some background information on my involvement looking into the Fisher case, and why this episode will be slightly different than my previous episodes. Now if you're unfamiliar with the Robert Fisher case, you can listen to my episode A Monster Among Us, which covers the details of the case, and will bring you up to speed for this episode. So years ago, my family owned a cabin in Heber, Arizona, which isn't far from Young Road in the Tonto National Forest. Young Road is where Mary Fisher's SUV was discovered ten days after the Fisher home exploded. As I became more familiar and interested in this case, I spent a lot more time up there exploring near where Mary's SUV was found. I started speaking and meeting with people associated with the early stages of the searches and even those involved in the manhunt for Robert Fisher. At that time, it was my original intent to write a book and film a short documentary on those adventures and the stories that came from them, both of which I started to do in late 2016, up until my family decided to move out of Arizona. And that, of course, meant selling our cabin. So those projects were put on a shelf. But some of this episode will be read directly from what I had written for that book, as well as what I learned from my research. It's also what I think happened to Robert Fisher, and where I believe he can be found. It was on a February afternoon that I made the 12-mile drive from my cabin in Heber, Arizona, to Young Road in the Tonto National Forest. For months, I'd been communicating with a team of Arizona cave explorers, some of whom had actually assisted the FBI in its initial searches for Robert Fisher. I really wanted to do a test run in a cave, just to understand what type of environment the caves were, and if Fisher had hidden one, what would he have experienced? Eventually, that cave diving community invited me to go with them into the Redman Cave. Their exploration trip coincided with a weekend I'd be at my cabin, so it seemed that the stars had aligned for me to enter one of these caves. I met with two cave divers off of Young Road, fairly deep in the Tonto National Forest. They led me over a fence into a dense patch of trees. Then we walked a half mile or so into the forest. When we stopped, they pointed at a rocky crevice in the forest floor and said, This is it. To my surprise, The Red Man Cave was no more than a small hole in the ground. As I stood anxiously above the dark crevice in the forest floor, the two cave spelunkers I was with were nearby putting on their gear and checking their flashlights. They nodded at each other, and then they looked over at me and asked, Are you ready? I nodded. 
But then I thought to myself, am I? What could be waiting down there for me in the dark? Was I really going to find a clue the FBI missed in its manhunt for Robert Fisher? I doubted that. But to make sure I could eliminate the possibility that Robert hid in a cave as the manhunt for him was underway, I made a commitment to myself in my own investigation. I was going to go into every cave I could fit into, looking for any clues the FBI could have missed and anything that would lead me to the whereabouts of Robert Fisher. Inside the cave, the distance from the ceiling to the floor was no more than three feet, forcing each of us to get on our hands and knees to move forward. The cave floor was muddy and cold, and the air near the entrance was full of flying bugs. As we moved forward, we crawled past a sign that said that the cave was closed from March 1st to October 1st to protect the fringed Myotis bat, which uses the small dark caverns for its maternity roost. Just as soon as I had read that sign, I froze in place, and a wave of fear sent a shudder through my body. There was a spider the size of my hand resting on top of the sign, the guy behind me asked me what was wrong. And I pointed at the sign and said, That's the biggest fucking spider I've ever seen. He quickly shined his light at the sign. And immediately, I became both relieved and embarrassed. Because what I thought was a spider was no more than a length of twine that had been knotted over several times and it was cut and frayed in a way that it resembled spindly insect legs. It was a good reminder for me that in the dark, your mind plays tricks on you, and mine was no different. After we had crawled a good distance forward, one of the guys told me we shouldn't spend more than an hour inside here because the low oxygen levels can cause you to pass out. And then he tells me that a few years prior, he was asked to assist the park rangers in recovering a body in the very same cave not far from where we were. Apparently, a daring, inexperienced cave diver had hit a pocket of dead air and lost consciousness and soon after lost his life. After we emerged from the cave, we had lunch and I was kind of loitering around when one of the guys told me to stop and I froze, thinking there was a rattlesnake near me that I had missed. And then the guy says, you're about to step on a grave. And sure enough, near my feet was a rock that someone had scratched the name Redman into, and it was laying on top of a blank patch of dirt. You see, the cave was named for a man who had died over a century before in that very spot. 
It was just a bizarre thing to see in the middle of nowhere, after crawling out of a hole in the ground. Over the course of a year, I would crawl into every cave I could in the immediate area. And the ones I couldn't get into, I would shine the strongest flashlight I had into them to see as far as I could inside. I'm convinced now more than ever that Robert Fisher did not enter any of those caves. So I read that from one of the few completed chapters from my book. Now I didn't name the cave divers in this reading because at the time they gave me their permission to use their names for a book and not a podcast. And since it has been years since I spoke with either of them, I chose to leave them nameless here. I went on to meet with many cave divers over a two-year period between 2014 and 2016, and almost all of them I met with were convinced that Robert Fisher was still alive and somewhere on the run. The cave diver I spoke to the most was a man named Ray Keeler. Now, Ray is considered an expert cave diver, and he was a great help to me in providing the best locations to search in that area. He even brought me to the Club 41 cave. That cave sits on the Fort Apache Reservation, and according to Ray, it was named the Club 41 because the mob had used it to move alcohol during Prohibition. It's also the same cave that the FBI and Scottsdale SWAT team was convinced that Fisher was hiding in shortly after they found Mary Fisher's SUV nearby. The SWAT team actually dropped tear gas in that cave and even had a negotiator brought in to try to coax Robert out of it. Ray assisted in searching the Club 41 after and still has one of the empty tear gas canisters he recovered from that search. To this day, I still see Ray's name show up in cave search and rescue stories online. And he recently brought a news crew doing a story on the Fisher case to the Club 41 cave. And he even showed them the empty tear gas canister he still keeps from the manhunt for Fisher 20 years ago. So I'd like to thank Ray again for all of his help. As I continued to spend my weekends doing ground searches and cave explorations, I also started to look deeper into the details of the case. I always believed, and still do, that Robert Fisher is dead, which is why I spent so much time focused on the area where Mary's truck was found. But to prove this, I needed to put myself into Robert's state of mind at the time he murdered his family. Now it's easy to call Robert Fisher a monster for what he did. But prior to the night of April 9, 2001, he was recognized by his friends and neighbors as a God-fearing family man. There is evidence, by Robert's own admission, that he had an affair approximately a year or so prior to the murders. The affair naturally created a rift between Robert and Mary, but they sought out counseling to heal the wounds of that betrayal. 
Their family pastor had mentioned they were making progress in those sessions. There are many factors behind the cause of affairs, and I don't have enough information to know for sure why Robert strayed. But I came across an interview with one of Robert's neighbors. He told a documentary filmmaker that Mary was constantly berating Robert, and that Robert would just take it. If that was true, I thought to myself, how long would a prideful person take verbal abuse if he did so to keep his family together before he looked for satisfaction elsewhere? Now I want to make something perfectly clear. I'm not in any way condoning or excusing Robert's behavior. This is only my way of attempting to find understanding of Robert's decision-making process. And what I've learned from his actions is that Robert made most of his decisions from a place of pride and control, and less so from a place of rational thinking. When you understand that his actions seem more impulsive, it's less likely that they were planned. An impulsive person will have a sense of remorse after their impulsive actions, and that will be important to remember later. Now, whereas a person associated with rationalization will make more rational decisions, even if the circumstances are not ideal, and they know that the outcome of a situation is going to be out of their control. To put that simpler, a rational person going through a high-stress situation, such as a divorce, will still allow the decisions such as the division of their assets, child custody, alimony, and child support, to be handled by a court. And they would then accept the outcome even if it went against everything that they wished for. But a prideful person and a controlling person with impulsive tendencies would never allow any such decision to be made by anyone other than themselves. It's important to remember that just one of these traits wouldn't necessarily lead to bloodshed. It takes all three the combination of all three put into a high-stress situation. Now with all of that factored in with the known evidence, you can see a scenario where pride, impulse, and control could lead to what happened on the night of April 9th. So now that brings us to that fateful night. From early accounts by friends, family, and witnesses, that morning and afternoon were uneventful for the Fisher family. Robert got the oil changed in his truck and took his daughter, Brittany, to a function at their church. Mary took Bobby Jr. to a gun safety class. It wasn't until later that night that neighbors reported hearing a loud argument, sometime between the hours of 9 and 10.15 p.m., it is unknown what was said or what triggered that argument. But what is known is that at 10.45 p.m., an ATM took photos of Robert Fisher withdrawing $280 from his and Mary's shared account. Visible in the background of those photos 
was Mary's Toyota 4Runner. Then, ten hours later, the following morning, at 8.42 a.m., the Fisher home exploded. When Robert left that night, he only took his dog Blue with him and the money he had taken out of the ATM. Even though Arizona borders Mexico, Robert drove north to the Tonto National Forest. When he could have just as easily disappeared in South America with the 10-hour head start he had on law enforcement. So why did he do that? I see two possibilities. First, was that he intended to hide and listen to the news and to return and act oblivious to the murders and explosion. Using the excuse he was up north camping or hunting with his dog. The two clues that rebut this as a possibility is the fact he didn't pack anything. And the only gun missing from the home is also the gun that was used to kill Mary. The likely scenario, and the one I believe, is that he intended to commit suicide in the one place he spent a lot of his free time. The fact he left his hat behind in Mary's truck, and his dog had a muzzle full of porcupine quills, adds to my belief he killed himself shortly after he parked the SUV where it was found. Robert very likely walked a short distance into the woods and ended his life using the very gun he used to shoot Mary. And it seems obvious, with Blue being found outside the truck, that Blue was with Robert when he killed himself. Being loyal, Blue stayed with Robert's body and even attempted to protect it from scavengers. The first of which, in this instance, would have been porcupines. This also would have resulted in Blue's injuries. And an injured dog often hides. And with the SUV being the only object familiar to him, that would be the reason, I believe, Blue returned to it and stayed. As for Robert's body, a close-range gunshot would have destroyed most of Robert's skull leaving very little to be discovered by searchers after ten days of scavenger activity. The only evidence that could be discovered, even all these years later, would be Robert's gun. And that is what I set out to find. was my last trip into the Tonto National Forest to search one more time for Robert's gun before I closed on the sale of my cabin. Before that weekend, I had sent an email to the Scottsdale Police Department, specifically Hugh Lockerbie, who at that time was the lead detective assigned to Robert's case. I asked him the following questions. Number one, were the keys to Mary's SUV inside it 
when it was found. I ask this for two reasons. This would confirm for me that Robert left the SUV abruptly with no intention of returning if the keys were still inside of it. And if they weren't inside the SUV, it would give me another item to search for with my metal detector. The next question. How much gas was in the SUV? If the tank in the truck wasn't full when Robert left, he likely would have had to stop for gas on his way to Young Road, which he would have probably paid in cash with the money he got from the ATM. If the tank was more than three-quarters full, this likely occurred. If less than three-quarters, he probably didn't stop until he parked it. And lastly, was the radio on? And if so, what station was it on? If the radio was on and tuned on to a local news station, that would give some credibility to the theory Robert was monitoring news reports on his own case, which would have made any decisions he planned on making based on the investigation. Because the case is still open, I knew sending the email and expecting a response was a long shot. And of course, I didn't receive any reply. On that last day, I went into the woods with my dog, Malo. I didn't do a lot of cave or crevice searches, just long sweeps with my metal detector. I found very little on that trip. An arrow with a metal hunting tip that couldn't have been more than a year old and lots of empty shell casings. Just a month prior to this trip, I had stumbled across the carcass of a horse. At that time, it was mostly a skeleton with some of its coat still intact. But on this trip, very little of it remained. Most of it had been scattered over a wide area. If I hadn't seen it before, I wouldn't have known what kind of animal it belonged to. That just added to my theory of the scavenger activity in that area of the woods. Able to separate a large horse over thirty days made me believe they easily could have done the same to a human in much less time. I left that day frustrated, convinced of a theory I had failed to prove. Knowing that this was my last opportunity to try, I left Arizona and the Fisher case behind. When the 20th anniversary of Robert Fisher's disappearance was coming around, I returned to look at all of the pictures and video I had taken on my searches, some inside the Club 41 and Redman Caves, and many of them hiking those woods with Malo by my side. It was right around this time that Malo passed away at 14 years of age. 
To say I was devastated is an understatement. Because to me, I hadn't lost a dog, I had lost a child. So when I finally picked up the pieces, I put this episode together, in part to honor Malo and to tell you the story of how deeply I involved myself in this case. It gave me an opportunity to think back to the time I spent with Malo and how he and I are connected to this case. So I'd like to end with this. A message to Malo. I love you and miss you every day. We didn't find what we were looking for out there. But what I did find was a love for your companionship and an admiration for your bravery. You're in a place now where time and pain will never touch you again. And I will see you when I cross the Rainbow Bridge.